What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast, and our website, talklouderpodcast.com, where you can find links to our merch and all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And uh, today we're joined by a friend of ours of many, many years, and uh, it just so happens that he's in one of the biggest metal hard rock bands of the last, I'd say, 20 years. I think that's safe to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've got John Moyer from Disturbed with us today. And uh, John's a great guy, a really interesting career. He has had a lot of great opportunities. He's worked very hard to earn those opportunities. We talk a lot about that today. Uh, you'll find out he's a great storyteller. He's very high energy, has a lot of enthusiasm for what he does. And I think that always makes for great uh, relationships in whatever industry you're in. And in John's case, it's also made for a catalog of some great music and some great memories. So I've got two things about John that I really love. He's a good dude. Yeah. He's a really good dude. The other thing is he's obviously a great bass player. Yeah. Yeah. The third thing is he cares. I guess that goes with good dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he cares about whatever job he's got his head wrapped in, wrapped up, you know, whatever he's completely focused on, he's going to do a great job. He's going to inspire. He's going to have a great time. He's going to make sure you have a great time and he's there to learn just as much. So, yeah. You know, he's best known for being the bass player in Disturbed, but uh, many of us here in Texas and around the world remember him from the Union Underground. Uh, they were signed to a major label. Did some He replaced tour. me. Yeah, replaced you in the Union <laughs> Underground. Yeah. Which feels weird to say, but <laughs> I was standing in his shoes that he didn't know were his shoes. Right. For, for right. two years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Union Underground signed to a major and they toured with Ozfest and they toured with Marilyn Manson. And uh, fun fact, when Union Underground was getting started, they did a whole tour and the opening band was Linkin Park. Mm -hmm. So Union Underground uh, achieved quite a bit in their short time. Then John moved on to Disturbed and we're going to talk about some of his other things that he's been involved in. Uh, he played in a band called Art of Anarchy that had Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots on vocals. Uh, they also had Scott Stapp from Creed on vocals on a second album. Uh, John was also in a band called Adrenaline Mob with Mike Portnoy on drums. Uh, I should mention Bumblefoot was in uh, Art of Anarchy on guitar. Shredder from uh, Spent Some Time in Guns N' Roses. And uh, also with Jeff Tate from uh, Jeff Tate's version of Queensryche, and, uh, which segued into uh, his version being called Operation Mindcrime. Uh, John was the bass player in that band as well. So uh, obviously a very storied career, a lot of great chapters. We touch and that's not all, but wait, <laughs> there's more. There's more. So I, I, no, I feel for you that you have to write the description for this episode yeah. and <laughs> include wait. All, all of the badassery that you just used in this intro here. Yeah, my, my description is going to be a paragraph, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of, lot, of, lot of accomplishments and a lot of great energy and just a good dude, like Jason said. Uh, we're happy to have him today. John Moyer on the Talk Louder podcast. 
Nice. Yeah. So thanks for joining us, man. It's good to see you. I see one of my one of my pictures is crooked. It's gonna drive me crazy if I don't fix it right now. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. Fix that shit. <laughs> Need a ladder. Oh, look, it's professional. Oh. <laughs> That's better. Interior hey. decorating with John it, Moyer today on the top. It, it is better. It is better. Yeah. Still a little off, but that's okay. You guys see, look at this wall. Nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a high ceiling. That is a high. Did you paint that? <laughs> yeah, I sure did. I do all my own housework for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Those are the those are the gold and platinum records from Disturbed over the years. Nice. That's quite I, uh, a trophy case. These are my high school posters from through the years. <laughs> Not as impressive, yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I love it. You got you got the collection. <laughs> and this is a, and this is a bunch of crap that I refuse to throw away. <laughs> right. I think uh, if we had a garage sale, John's uh, collection might sell for a little more than ours. But mine would only sell to one fan. Like uh, mine's just disturbed stuff, or you know, the bands I've been in. You know, you got stuff from all kinds of different bands. <laughs> yeah, like Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes and whatever. I got a merciful fate plaque that that a buddy of mine sent. Sit that see that don't break the oath plaque up there. Did you get that from Bobby? It's right here. I got it from a guy named Bob. I got it from Bob. No, no, that's that's not true. I got it from uh Better get it right. Yeah, I just fucked up, didn't I? We Uh did a whole we did a whole episode on that plaque. God damn it. It's going to kill me. Edit, edit, edit. edit, edit mayday, edit. mayday. No, I'll, I'll get it right. Can you hear me okay? Is, the, is it okay? Yeah, you look great. Yeah, we, we can hear you just fine and see you just fine, especially after you clean that lens with your shirt. I would like to thank Mike Board for giving Mike Board, there Mike we go. Mike Board sent me that. Mm-hmm. Hey, John, thanks for joining us, man. We've been uh, having me. We've tried to get you a couple times. You're a busy guy, obviously, but uh, we're we're happy to have you today. I can't believe it's been uh, two weeks since you were over at my house. John, John, and I both have teenage sons, and we've been trying for the longest time to get them together to jam because they're both musically inclined. And we finally made that happen. A Rock couple stars in the making. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that sort of reignited this whole idea of let's get you on the podcast. So uh, thanks for joining us, man. I learned yeah. I learned something from the, the video that was shared. What? That what every you... girl's crazy about a sharp dressed man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the tune the boys were playing. Well, that, and, then, well and then when we left the room, they went into System of a Down and, <laughs> and much heavier stuff. They, Sign of the they, times. they let us old men do some old man rock with them and then... Then when we left, they got heavy. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's cool is when they're old men, that same kind of thing is going to happen. True. Uh, True. But in my opinion, System of a Down is not really new. Did I just hang myself? They're not. They're not. Kids today are getting into it. Honestly, I think, um, you know, let's let's talk about music here for a second. Oh, that's what this is about. Yeah. (laughs) One of the great things, in my opinion, about metal, more so than even rock, is that it stands the test of time. It has longevity. There's always a new group of teenage boys in particular who discover it. Um, you know, like my son or me, for example, I got into Black Sabbath 
um, you know, way after they were a big band, Ozzy was already on his own and I was getting into black Sabbath. And now my son's getting into system of a down and those records are 20 years old. Yeah. So, um, there's something to be said. And then and my, now my son gets into Sabbath. I've been playing him, you know, we sold our soul for rock and roll and the old stuff. And we have Metallica Mondays and we listen to, um, you know, we have a commute to his school. So when we're in the car, um, you know, it's music time. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he gets an education from me, you know, he knows all about the grunge era. He loves Alice in Chains. He knows a bunch of Metallica. Um, we get in the system of a down. Oh, recently I turned him on to, um, the real thing by faith. No more mm-hmm. that record in particular, which they, there's an, there's a, there's an argument to be said that that was the start of a new metal. Like yeah. didn't really exist wow. until that yeah. record blew up. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that argument. That's uh, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I, I remember so. when that came out and it was, uh, it how was do you, new. how do you think corn fits into the beginning of new metal? I mean, pioneers, their first, re- their first record, the first corn record, like, you might as well have just put your head in a meat grinder because I I hadn't at, up to that point I hadn't really heard anything like that I wouldn't wouldn't have even at that point called it funk metal even though it had all the you know slappity slappity bass stuff it was fucking brutal yeah and yeah. the vocals were brutal it was almost like I don't know screamo and death metal and funk and it didn't remind me of Faith No More at all, but I think Faith No More had luck with the mainstream, whether they were even cutting out for looking for it at all. And they weren't. I mean, um, it doesn't nah, seem like right. it. You know, it's yeah. just kind of. But right. that record's so good. I listen to it now, and I still so, fan and of I it. Say, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I could say the same thing about Corn too that I just said about Faith No More. They weren't yeah. looking for it, and they were probably in their minds writing the most fucked up shit they could think of. And then look what happened. Yeah. yeah. I heard an argument that I thought was interesting because I'd never heard it before. When I think of new metal, I think the, uh, you know, sort of the, the forefathers are Corn, uh, 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 Faith No More, bands that we were talking about. But somebody made the point that you could also say the Sepultura album Roots was <laughs> sort of the beginning. And I never thought of that. But then I heard, listened to it and I was like, oh, I, I kind of get that. I can see that, you know? It's hard to really define new metal. I mean, people kind of want to go, well, it's rap rock, but it's not. Um, it's more than that. It's less than that. You know, Limp Bizkit's probably new metal. They're probably like the, 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 and then it was like, well, if it doesn't have DJs and doesn't rap, it's not new metal, but that's not true. Um, cause like we said, corn and, and faith no more, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know how to describe what new metal is like to somebody who has never heard it, but then I know I could play them like four records and they'd be like, Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, your band gets lumped in that category all the time. Disturbed. Uh, how first do you record for it? sure. That first yeah. record for sure. And then I think disturbed kind of turned the corner into, into a more hard rock band. But we still have songs off every record that, you know, that you can hear go back to our first record, The Sickness, and kind of have that thing. Um, I think now, you know, I don't know, you just write what you write. So, you know, that was a moment in time, that first record. And then now the band seems to be more, um, you know, writing kind of like harder edged, um, heavier stuff, less, new metal's kind of quirky, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's got a lot of, 
disparate, what seemingly what used to be considered disparate elements all kind of thrown together. Now that now that it's been thrown together for 25, 30 years, it's become sort of its own identity. But but yeah, there's a lot more to it than just your standard drums, bass, guitar. I think you're right. That's a good way to put it. Disparate pieces that get put together and then it, and it creates that unique sound. That's probably the best way I've ever heard it described. Well, that 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 makes me like the term new metal a little better because I really do not like the term new metal. And I, it's, it's as bad as hair metal because you're taking these elements that don't really matter at all. Do I like it? Yes. Do I like it? No. Do I like it? Yes. It's 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 fairly black and white for me personally. I'm just I'm just letting it rip. I don't want to bite my tongue. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that's under the umbrella of new metal or or whatever, even Disturbed or Avenged Sevenfold or and just go, just go, just run from all that. I'm not a fan of Limp Biscuit. I understand it, uh, but there's more to what I feel like my heart wants to fall in love with, and it's just everything goes back to rock and roll. And I think Disturbed, not kissing ass here, has a little more rock, especially now, has a little more rock and roll in it than, like you said, your first album, which I I think really fits what Dave just described. And that's enough to start running with with whatever the fuck it is we're talking about. I think it's a generational thing, too. Like, you you look at bands... uh, like the bands that we're considering new metal, your corns, your limp biscuits, uh, disturbed, uh, and and you go back and you look at their influences. A lot of times those guys are from a generation after me and Jason, not so much John, but we grew up, me and Jason grew up when metal was defined by things like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. And a lot of the new metal bands, I think, when they were teenagers, their record collection, they grew up on Pantera and Ministry and stuff like that. Yes, and we so, did. Let's, 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 <laughs> hope that's, let's hope that's the truth all the way around. I think it is, though, because if, I mean, I read all the rock magazines and stuff, and you'll see an interview, I'll just throw a name out there, like a, from a guy from the Deftones, and he talks about when he was a kid, he bought Injustice for All, and it changed his life. I'm like, Injustice for All? I remember when Kill 'Em All was like the groundbreaking new album because I was still hung up on Iron Maiden and his yeah. starting point is Injustice for All or or Vulgar Display of Power or something that's their starting point. So I think that sort of influences what became known as new metal for lack of a better term. I could see I that. Like it. Uh, I like it. I know for myself Iron Maiden, I definitely appreciate. I know their music. I played tons of their songs over the years, but it's really not what I grew up on. They had kind of like, kind of had come up and then, you know, they, and so for me, when I, when I was still in high school, that's when Pantera came out there, you know, Cowboys from Hell. And then, and then the second record, which was a number one hit at Billboard, which blew everybody away, vulgar display of power. When that hit, it was like, it was crazy because we all loved Pantera. We had no idea it was going to be a number one record. Number it turned one. out to be number one record. The number one record was Far Beyond Driven. I mean, Far Beyond Driven. That's right. Yeah, that's right. My bad. And when that record came out, we all lost our minds. We're just like, this is so cool that like it was like a validation, you know. And then so, you know, I I grew up during the I would say 
I was end of Master of Puppets. You can almost define your musical career by by what Metallica record you were listening to as a teenager, right? <laughs> so like, you know, for me, it's like, and Justice for All came out. I was really into one. And then I was graduating. I was like, oh, I'm about to graduate high school when when the Black Album came out. And that was a, that was a big influence. And then, of course, Master of Puppets is great. But then, and Jason, you can attest to this. When I had my rock school and I was teaching kids, some kids would come in. They'd be like, I love Metallica. And I'm like, oh, yeah, me too, Master of Puppets. And they're like, no, fuel, load and reload. Yeah. And, and right. it was like, and it really opened my eyes. So it's like, wow, they, you know, they're, they're Metallica fans because of the newer songs that, you know, the newer generation for them of what they were listening to. And um, I find that happens with Disturbed too. We'll meet, you know, fans and they're like, oh, I listen to your stuff in high school. And I'm like, you know, and they're like, I love Indestructible. A lot of my, a lot of our fans love Indestructible. And then our older fans, you know, grew up on the first record and that's the record they love. It really depends. It, it's, it's, and if you're an artist like a Metallica or a Kiss or an Iron Maiden or a Black Sabbath that keeps putting out records throughout the years, you know, and, and then you start to realize um, a lot of your fans are defined not necessarily by like a one record thing. And that's what I was saying about hard rock and, 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 and metal in general is that new fans keep popping up and then they'll support whatever new thing you're doing. And then that'll be their favorite thing. And so I, I have I definitely, I noticed it with Metallica when I was teaching at my school. And now that disturbed has, you know, seven, eight records out. When I talk to fans, it, it's all over the board, but it always comes down to whatever we put out when they were in high school. <laughs> it's like yeah. their favorite shit. <laughs> I well, think I, that's fair. Yeah. You said something very interesting when you mentioned rock school or school of rock, or it doesn't matter what company it is, just kids taking lessons from an older rock person. Oh, I love Metallica. Me too. I love that story, by the way. But when they say fuel, I, I stop right there and I go, wow. I, I bet I'm as old as your grandparents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? That puts it in perspective too, because that means that somebody, an older brother, dad, mom, either listens to, you know, alternative radio, which Metallica, you know, that's how a lot of people discovered Metallica was on alternative hard rock, you know, loud rock as billboard would call it sometimes. Because uh, that could be Nickelback, it could be Metallica, be White Zombie, Loud Rock, right? Uh, Limp Biscuit. a lot of the bands we've been talking about era-specific, Fuel-specific, early 2000s, whatever. I so, agree. Yeah, so so if their parents are a certain age and they ah, if they downloaded it, if they have the record or whatever, that's what is around the house all the time. So little Johnny is going to be in Fuel. And not to go down a Metallica rabbit hole, but we were just talking about that. Metallica on those load, reload, my load, your load records, those records, they're they're rediscovering themselves as a rock and roll band. Metallica is. Yeah. Fuel is like you know, that's it's it's a rock and roll song. Those are rock and roll records. I don't know if there's anything on those records that really even borrows like they kind of do now, you know, they, they take, they're influencing themselves by just remembering, Whoa, how did that riff go again? And, you know, playing the, the first three records in the set 
for going on 50 years now. Yeah. So when you, think I, I respect that so much. I think you too. I think, I think you should give the fans what they want, but at the same time, you do need to evolve. There's a fine line. Like they say, you know, fans, they get mad because a band puts out a record that doesn't sound like the last record, but then they get mad if they put out the same record. Yeah. So it's like, okay. But I think there, there's a happy middle ground and, um, you know, there's, there's bands who get stuck doing the same thing year after year and it, and it, and it becomes stale. ACDC is not one of those bands, go figure, but even though they have definitely, you know, a similar formula. Um, but most bands, I think that, that stand the test of time, they know enough or, or it's in, it's in them to put out the music that their fans love, but also to push the boundaries and do something new and offer something fresh. And sometimes that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you feel like Disturbed is definitely one of those bands and you guys look forward to writing and creating something a little bit special? I'll just say, I don't want to say overtly, uh, incredibly different than the last record, but something, absolutely. something special. That, that is, that is our mantra. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, um, you know, do what works for us, but also do something new, push ourselves. Mm-hmm. Let's get uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, if you think about it, you know, the first record, first two records didn't even have a guitar solo on it. That was the first record was a, sort of a new metal thing. Second record was a little more um, layered, a little more guitar heavy, but still no guitar solos. Yeah. Third record, Dan, Dan starts wailing and people are like, we didn't even know this guy could was a shredder, you know? And then we start going into these, you know, guitar solo things. And then fourth record, kind of a combination of things fifth record we got really heavy let's see how heavy we can get asylum's our heaviest record i love that record it's just pummeling listen to that record and you're ready to beat somebody up i love it and then we took a break and we came out with immortalized immortalized then has sound of silence so obviously we're kind of like going in a new direction here and then that opened up a lot of doors for us so the next record after sound of silence we called evolution because it was us really embracing uh new ideas and new ways to do it and so I think Evolution to, to me is probably our most controversial record because um, a record's 10 songs deep, right? And I think four or five of the songs off Evolution are either acoustic or are ballads. Half the record is is ballads. And there's some great bangers on on Evolution. Just like, you know, Are You, are you Ready? I think it's off that record and a couple other just really powerful songs. But then... We've got a reason to fight. We've got hold on to memories. Hold on to memories. When I went to a wedding venue and they played it on the speaker and it wasn't because I was there. It's like part of the rotation, you know? And so like, that was a chance after Sound of Silence, we were like, let's take this chance to really see what we can do. And so that record called it Evolution on purpose to show people, you know, we're not not just going to put out the same old, same old, you know? So some fans loved it. Some fans hated it. Um, but nonetheless, it's like, you can't please everybody. You just got to do what's in your heart. And, and, and I think you have to grow musically or you get, you get stale. So then after evolution, you know, we've got the new record out, um, uh, divisive and divisive is, is powerful. It's pummeling. Um, the new single bad man is one of the heaviest songs, if not the heaviest song that we've ever put out. So, you know, now we're kind of at that point, maybe we're like where Metallica is at, where they're like, well, what have we done? What do we, ha- what haven't we done? And what do we like to do? Okay. This next record, let's, let's pull from here. Let's pull from here. Let's pull from here. Let's put it together and then, you know, move forward with it. So, 
hopefully, hopefully we're following in those, those Metallica steps. Well, what's fantastic yeah. is that you, you're in a position to where you can do that. You can, you can take some chances and be different. You have a loyal enough following. You, you guys have done very well for yourselves uh, since day one. And it's been, you know, probably a little bit of up and down as far as, you know, what they all, where the almighty dollar is flowing, but you guys are still lucky enough to, or blessed enough to uh, be in a position to be able to challenge yourselves and still have the following uh, chomping at the bit to hear a new song from you guys's uh, intellectual, uh, you know, third eye. I think also it helps that David, our singer is so versatile. Of course. You know? He's got, yeah. he's got a lot in his bag of tricks. Yeah. Um, there's some singers, you know, God bless them. They're one trick ponies. They got their one thing. They do it well. You know, yeah, I am the one tongue of the gun. You know, yeah. zombie does zombie well, but that's right. going to be zombie all the way. You know, you're not going to hear him sing, sing a beautiful ballad. You're not going to hear him doing a baritone. You know, David's comfortable, you know, rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat. And then he's comfortable also singing you know, big open notes. Um, so uh, that's, you know, having that kind of range in your singer allows uh, Dan, you know, our guitar player who does, you know, he does most of the songwriting with David. They're, they're like the Lennon McCartney of metal yeah. is what I call them because they just have oh. such a great connection. And it's just the two of them, man. And, and they, and, you know, and they've, they've worked together for so long and they just keep pushing each other. You know, and then like as soon as David shows another little trick he has, Dan goes, ha, gotcha. And he writes something into it, you know. So um, they're a great team. And, uh, and but it's, it's that versatility uh, that Dave has that allows a lot of, of what we're able to do. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I read something one time that said that Disturbed was on a streak of five consecutive, and I might have the number wrong, but I think it was at least five consecutive multi-platinum albums. And the only other company, the only other bands that could claim to have done that was uh, Metallica, Van Halen, the Dave Matthews Band, and U2. And I thought that just stopped me in my tracks because I was like, man, that's, that's some pretty elite company. But if I look at your numbers... They seem to bear that out. Does that ring any bells it's, with you? It's five number one records in a row. So after the first record, which is your, you know, when we say number one record, we mean number one when it, when it came out that week. Shipped. Yeah. You know it's what I mean? Because that's ships, it ships as a number one record. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to build up to a number one sure. because because you know when you start when Disturbed started, nobody knew who the band was, so it didn't ship number one it took a while even though that's that's our best-selling record it never hit number one that week at billboard yeah you know what i mean like yeah. you have to have you have to have some kind of single that blows up or you have to be an established band that has the fan base like like pantera did you know when they put when they put out their second record so so for us we had five in a row believe um indestructible uh ten thousand fists um asylum and uh, I think immortalized. Um, so five in a row that week, number one records when they came out. Um, that's that's a testament to the fan base, honestly. Indus industry anything. industry anticipation. Right, right. So there's only a few bands that had that. So there's two. There's a couple reasons that happened. One of them was obviously fans who just love the band, who are voracious. 
also, you can't wait too long between records if you're going to get that kind of in a row, in a row, in a row, in a row. If you wait too long, that next record might not do as good and takes a little while to heat up or some of your fans leave and you don't have that that pop. So we we were working hard. We would, we would tour for a year and a half and we would make a record for a year and tour a year and a half and make or less than a year. So we were putting out a record every two years, um, yeah. which is a lot. You know, when you're talking like four records in a row, bam, 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 bam. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's a part of the reason, you know, we just kept that momentum going. Um, but yeah, it was Metallica, Dave Matthews Band, System of a Down. Oh, okay. And uh us, and I think there's another band. I don't think it's you too though. Okay. I could have I could have been wrong. I I felt like it's, I had most it's of the stat. Yeah, it, it's a really weird stat, but it's a very impressive stat because when I saw Disturbed in in lumped in with those other names that, again, I consider, you know, this is me being old again. But I when I think of best selling artists, Metallica, uh, well, Dave Matthews band isn't that old. So anyway, I just know that those bands that were that you're in the company of sell a lot of friggin records and for yeah. you guys to be in that same company was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Tell us I'm... about um so you're not an original member of Disturbed, uh, but uh and when you were when you were over here the other day, you were telling me the story. I always like the story about your audition because there was you were known in the industry, so you had a bit of a name, um, and you could have kind of maybe pulled some strings and tried to put yourself in an advantageous position to get that gig. But you kind of you, you kind of did it the, you know, the old school way, the pound in the pavement way. I want you to tell our listeners about your audition for the gig and how you ultimately got there, because you told me that the band was a little leery of you at first. Well, uh, so before Disturbed, I was in the band, um, the Union Underground, mm -hmm. you know, Union Underground, you filled in for them a few times and helped them out back in the day. I was um, in the band two, friends with Patrick Kennison. Yeah, two, two years I was in the band and I had to quit because I wanted to write my own. I was right. I was right on, on, you know, across the street. I'm, I'm in my own bands and writing my own songs. Right. So right. I had to, I had to split and it's a story on my side. And then you, you just take it is uh brian and them were like so you sure about this because you know i showcased with them and everything and they were like man are you sure about this it, well okay well who in austin plays bass uses pedals and plays with a pick and could sing a little bit and i said john moyer <laughs> i didn't <laughs> hesitate and i thought that your band at the time soak yeah, uh, sort of not we're kind of concert. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of yeah, we're, we're on the back end of, of our run. Just kind of uh, hanging around. Timing of it worked out good. So I got the union yeah. union gun gig in that band for four or five years. Yeah. And then we, we broke up in October of 2003. And then in November of 2003, Disturbed announced on the radio that they were parting ways with their bass player, Fuzz. Right. So I was like, hmm, you know, let's see if I can make this work. So I did pull every string I had, Dave. Um, I I um, I had uh, Mikey, the drummer's number and Dan's number. So I left them messages and I said, hey, man, you know, you lost your bass player. I lost my band. If you guys need somebody temporarily or you're looking for someone permanent, please keep me in mind, you know. And, you know, they, they were being flooded with calls from all kinds of dudes, you know, as soon as that announcement came out. So sure. I'm suffice to say they never really got an answer back from that. 
And then um, I knew some people in management, you know, from the Soak years and Union Underground days. And and so Paul Nugent, who managed Soak, he knew the management company um, for Disturbed. So he put in a good word for me. He didn't really hear anything back. And then Disturbed in December said, you know, if you want to join our band, we're, we're, send us a, a CD with your music and a profile and a bio and all this. I put together the whole thing, you know, I put on, turn me on Mr. Dead Man, which is a number one rock radio hit as well as soak song, which had done really well for us. It was in American Royal from Paris. And but, uh, know, Caroline, Caroline, huh? was that Caroline? Uh, that was another one. Shutter gut. Yeah. And then okay. Caroline. Yeah. Was yeah. the, we should have called it because <laughs> that's what fans call it anyway. Yeah. But, um, oh, right. Right. Soak was notorious for misnaming our songs. But and I even put together like a picture disc, it had me on the front looking all badass, big old black cowboy hat, you know, just the whole thing. And once again, I didn't hear back. So uh, January and December, uh, or January and February of 2004 come around and I'm hearing through the grapevine that they're auditioning people, private auditions, they're bringing in people. And, and I'm not gonna name any names, but you know, I, I made some calls and I'm like, hey man, I heard you audition. Yeah, man, I'm, I don't think I'm gonna get the gig, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. I was like, did they, did they mention me or you hear anything? I'm like, no, man, you know, I don't think you're going to get the gig. And I just kind of kept hearing that. Like they knew I was interested, but you know, Union Underground was kind of hell on wheels. And, and, uh, I think, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that, uh, there was a, an idea of who I was that, um, they just, you know, they just kind of were turned off by. So, all right, whatever. But I wasn't going to give up until I got in front of them. Um, so like uh, January, February, March rolls around and they still haven't found a bass player. And um, even somebody through, through, their, through their label, um, I knew the secretary of their A&R guy and he went and put in a good word for me. Still like nothing, you know. <laughs> wow. so, so then they held an open audition first week of April. Um, well, what year, last week, what, what year last is week it? Of March, first week of April in 2004. So this is like, so October, I'm out of union underground. They announced, they announced departure of fuzz in November, December, January, February, late March, they held, held open audition in LA. And then early April, they held an open audition in Chicago. So two of them and the, the, the auditions are two weeks apart or a week apart, whatever. So I go to the second audition. And, um, I was, I was, I was pretty broke at the time, you know, it was, uh, Union Underground wasn't working. I was trying to work a day job, you know, um, I was uh, married at the time, um, to my ex, you know, we had a daughter together. So it's like a balancing act. It's like, is it time for me to hang up the spurs and, you know, start, you know, being a responsible adult or do I keep my life for, am I going to do this? Am I going to keep pursuing this? You know, of course I'm going to keep pursuing it. That's just, just in me. So we scrapped together what money we could, bought a plane ticket. I didn't even have enough. I had barely enough to even stay in a hotel room. I get to Chicago. I'm carrying my base with me. I, I hitched a ride to South Chicago, how dangerous that was because I couldn't afford a cab. <laughs> Somebody gave me a ride to South Chicago. I get down there. I check into a Motel 6, which, which is around the corner from the club where they were holding the auditions. They're holding auditions at a club called the Oasis. They're not, it's not around anymore, but Oasis is a badass Chicago nightclub back in the day, rock club. And um, I get up that morning to go to the audition. And once again, I have no idea how I'm going to get there. And I walk out and I see some dudes walk out of another hotel room and they're rockers. And I just can tell I'm like, 
hey, you guys here for the Disturbed audition? They're like, yeah, man. I'm like, awesome. Can I hitch a ride? They're like, yeah, sure. You know, so I hitched a ride even to the audition from the hotel. These guys are cool dudes. We're just, you know, shooting the shit. But during all this time, I'm not telling anybody I was in Union Underground. I'm not like putting that forward. You know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to fly to Chicago, if I'm going to stand in line, I'm, I'm going to do it like for real. I'm going to show these guys I'm willing to do anything that they want to get in this band. Yeah. You know? And I'm not going to want any special treatment. I want to be judged on the same level as every single guy that walks in that door. Okay. Yeah. So I get there. Um, there's already a line around the corner. Um, by the time I get in line, I'm like number 68, six, 67 in line. And then, and the line just keeps going after me. Um, by noon, there was 300 people in line. Right. <laughs> and they got people coming in and, and there's so many people in line. They're just like letting people play for 30 seconds. You know, boom, boom, boom. And you had to learn three songs. And they were going to tell you which song it was when you were at the door, right? So by the time I start, so so now I'm outside, outside, outside. Now I'm in the club and there's still a line in the club to go to like the private showcase room within the club. About this time, someone recognizes me from Union Underground. And some dude's like, oh, dude, I saw you on OzFest, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm taking some pictures and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, cool. It's just like, you know. No big deal. You know, I, you know, and, and there was some great bass players in line. I, the guy in front of me had fingers for hammers. The dude behind me was the touring bass player for Boston. I mean, these were some great players. Um, anyway, so I get up to the front of the line. Uh, they tell me my song that I'm going to do. I walk in and uh, the, the guys are sitting there kind of like American Idol style, right? There's like in chairs with management with clipboards which is kind of funny because like i've auditioned people and either you either know they're right or you don't like you don't really need a clipboard but you know maybe they were like taking notes on on people maybe it was getting down to that you know they're having a hard time finding somebody so they're just like doing whatever was needed so they're sitting there i walk in uh david uh draymond our singer sees me and he says john what are you doing here <laughs> and i go man i'm here for the same reason all these other guys are here and then he says, you know, sorry to hear about Union Underground. And I said, not me. That was my past. I'm here for my future. That's perfect. It was like exactly what I wanted to express to them. You know, I wanted to show them, uh, you know, that you can't say no to me unless you tell me in person. And and I'm I'm not going to give up, first of all. And and secondly, I'm not carrying any baggage with me. You know, this is this is me blank slate moving forward for you guys. So I get on stage. I play my little 30 seconds of the game was the song that I played, which is off the first record. As soon as I was done, man, I just, um, I just, my heart was just racing. I never even get nervous for a gig. I played in front of, even, even before Disturbed, I've played in front of massive crowds and never gotten this nervous. It's, and Jason, you can attest to this. It's harder to play for less people than it is for more people. I've never auditioned for that reason. I've never auditioned. <laughs> you <laughs> I'm just have scared to, to death to do that, man. <laughs> so I, uh, I said, I put my bass in the case, like as soon as the song's over, I just put my bass in the case. I shut it and I go, I go, hey, thanks a lot, guys. You guys got so many people out here who are, who are lined up. They're so thankful to even have this opportunity. This is a really cool thing you guys are doing. I'm going to get out of your hair so you guys can continue, you know, your day. And I just raced out, you know, I didn't go. So what do you think? Should we send everybody home? Because right. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, I wasn't that way at all. You know, I was like respectful of the process of, of the other people who were there. I grabbed my base. I locked it. And I just walked out the door. 
I mean, I already knew where the exit was before I even finished the song. And like, I'm, I'm in the middle of the song planning my exit. I'm like, leave him wanting more, pack that bass and get the fuck out. <laughs> that's exactly what I did, you know? And yeah. uh, so I'm in the parking lot and their manager rushes after me, um, Jeff Pataglia, and he's got this thick, thick Chicago accent. Hey, yo, John, what's what's up? Bro? Where, 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 are you, where are you going? Where are you going so fast? I'm like, I, I don't know. You know, audition's over. He's like, well, uh, the guys, they uh, they like you. They, they want you to come back tomorrow and, uh, you know, audition with them in person and play in person. I'm like, okay, cool my flight was the next day, you know? Mm. And I'm like, so, uh, I have a, I have a flight tomorrow. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of fishing, you know, can you pay for my flight or something? Right. He looks at me and he goes, you want the gig or not? Uh, <sighs> I, I do want the gig. So, uh, I, I went home and this was April 3rd, April 4th was my anniversary at the time I was supposed to be home called up uh my wife she was very supportive at the time i go honey happy anniversary i'm not gonna make it home <laughs> and she understood we changed the plane ticket you know um put it on whatever credit cards we had or borrowed whatever money we had to make it work i don't even know how we made it work back then and uh, i stayed the next day i showed up there were five people there none of them were from there was like one guy from the callback from la one guy from the callback well i was the callback from chicago the only one and then they had a couple other dudes who were kind of friends who they were, were kind of in the running and there was like five of us throughout the day that they ended up playing with the band and one thing led to another and I got the gig. Wow. That's such a great story. I, you, I love, you made I love the top you. five. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what I took out of that whole story was, was union underground such a, had such a reputation as being Hellraisers that they didn't want to touch you with a 10 foot pole. Cause they thought you were a liability or what? I mean, let's not, let's not get too specific about that. It was, we were all young. We we're all a little crazy. You know, you know, guys in particular, you know, I, I'll tell you right now, there had been a run in between, you know, the singers um, had had like a little issue and, you know, when you're in a band, that's your gang. So, yeah. you know, if my singer has an issue with your singer, well, I'm back in my singer. Uh -huh. you know? okay. So not that that was like a thing, but you know, that's just kind of how it was. So as it wasn't like, you know, we got to a fight or anything, but it got a little tense uh, between the two singers which was unfortunate because um, Disturb was on the rise and Union Underground could have used Disturb's help. And Disturb was, you know, I found out later that they were considering taking us out. And then that little altercation made David go, I don't want those guys out on the road with us. Wow. And it kind of, I just got lumped in with that whole scenario. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have so to say real did, quick, I have to yeah. say real quick, uh, I'm sorry, Dave, no, that, go ahead. that uh, John, when you told me that story years ago now, I can't, you know, just pretty close to right after you got it, I guess, because Broken Teeth came through Chicago. You drove out to Schaumburg and saw us. Yep. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the story has not changed one iota. The story about you, you know, scraping to get to Chicago to do that, even the verbiage and your communicado between them. I don't remember the 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 management you know hey john where you going i, I don't remember that part of it but that was kind of that's my new favorite part uh, <laughs> but, but the story hadn't changed a bit and i just want to say uh that you know it's not a surprise that you got the gig because uh you've always been stand up and straight so thanks pal yeah of course that. You know, I like to say, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, but that story doesn't need any embellishment. It tells itself. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, the deeper I go into the specifics of it, the more mind blowing it gets. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's why I wanted you to repeat it for the benefit yeah. of our listeners, because I, I've heard the story. That's probably now the third or fourth time you've told it to me. But it, it just like Jason says, it's such a great story. Um, and if nothing else, not only is it sort of a rocky sort of success story, but it really illustrates your your perseverance to uh, do what it takes to to give this your best shot. You know, credit I, cards and anniversaries and everything else. Is, yeah, notwithstanding. Not hey man, you know what? What we do uh, for music and rock, there's a lot of sacrifice. Um, yeah. And whether we're successful or not, we kind of have to do it. You know, whether, you know, you're a fan and, and you know, you're going to be a journalist about it or whether you're going to perform. Um, it's not like it's not an easy road. You know, there's no um, you don't go to college and get placed. You know, there's not like a placement program for it. You know, like I'm not I'm not going to go to school and get a base degree and they're going to be like, Microsoft's going to hire you. They've got a they've got a base division in Seattle. <laughs> right. There. That's some fucking exist, you know. Right. And here's the other thing, too. You could be great and never make it. Oh yeah. There's no like there's there's no wherewithal. Like, you know, it's about connection with fans, it's about striking something in people's hearts. Um I'm not like the greatest bass player. Like, you know, I can't shred. I watch guys on YouTube sometimes. I'm like, God damn, that guy's good. Yeah. You know, and and it's inspiring to me. Um, but at the same time, as good as that guy is or whatever, I wish him all the luck in the world. But that's not really what I got into music for. I like playing bass. I like being good, but I like music because I like songs. I like connecting to your heart. I like lyrics. I like melody. I like the sound of, of you know, the, the guitars and the pounding rhythms and, and, and the complexity that goes with that. And I like bands. I like the interplay that happens when more than one person uh, creates something. And, and there's that, that energy that a group has on stage that to me just gets me going. I mean, I can be at a rock show and just start like shedding a tear because I just feel it so powerful. Yeah. So um, that's why I got into it. I think that's the reason most people like music. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so but trying to define, trying to manufacture that mm. is, is difficult right. <laughs> and, and trying to find success within that. And In if you story, can manufacture it, it's almost sort of, it's manufactured. It's, it's not as heartfelt or, or organic or whatever. So you yeah. might still have success at it, but you're not feeling the same uh, emotional return as someone who gets into it for the reasons that you just expressed. Well, he's a, uh, John, John's, a, John's a lifer. He's a fan and you're, you're practicing your strengths, not your speed at scales. Yeah. For you're, sure. You're, and you're using uh, your story. You mentioned this, and this is this is very important. We're talking about just because you're good, you're not going to, you know, doesn't mean you're going to make it or go anywhere past the camera on your YouTube channel. You could be the greatest, you could be the goat, and no one would care other than, gee, look at this guy on YouTube. What's for dinner? You know, uh, yeah. but the, 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 the effect that you have is because of the heart that you have. But what I was going to say about your story is this is important to me. You mentioned you're using your resources. You don't have any money, but you're you're put, you're trying. You know, you're calling the secretary that works for the label guy, and you're <laughs> you're you're making sure that you can you know uh, ex, you know tug the right string and go. Excuse me, yeah, sorry to bother you, but 
would like to try to find out what's, you know, so I could, cause I, you know, you're trying to throw your name in the hat until you're standing in front of them. Absolutely. And you made it happen because you were using your resources. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm so-and-so and I'm just going to walk in and get the, you know, get the, or, or I'm sorry, I'm so-and-so, I'm just going to make a phone call and get the gig. That was never in your vocabulary at all. You were the whole time working, doing the work, making a phone call, you know, oh, they need a press kit. No problem. Blah, da, 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 black cowboy hat, blah, 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 blah. You did everything. So those little baby steps, you did every one of them until you were like, thank you for your time, gentlemen. I'll see you tomorrow, which resulted in, hey, John, where you going, buddy? <laughs> so, yep. boom. Yeah. yeah. How long have you, you been know, in Disturbed now? Uh, nine, uh, it'll 19 years coming up. Jay. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. You know, it comes down to this, Jason. It's respect. I respected what they built. I respected who they were, you know, and if you're going to put your, if you're, if you're going to want to join something like that, you know, you can't come in heavy handed. You're, you know, you're coming in on their terms, their rules, and you don't know what those rules are. You don't know what those terms are. You don't know their expectations. So yeah, you want to put your best foot forward, but at the same time, it's like, uh, can I step here? Can, okay. You know, like, like yeah. if it's, I just, I just respected, you know, what they had done. And I, I just wanted to make sure that, um, I don't know, you're not going to come in and tell people what to think of you. They're going to think of you what they think of you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I want to, I want to talk right. about uh, the union underground because I grew up in San Antonio. The band was based out of San Antonio. You see and this? Is it backwards? I see that. No. Oh, uh, it's perfect. Keep San Antonio <laughs> metal. Yeah. Um, so being from San Antonio and being a fan of hard rock and metal and that sort of thing, you guys were our great hope. You know, the Union Underground signed to a major label, picking up some good tours. You were we were starting to see you in the magazines and stuff. Um, you got the you, you toured Ozfest. That was amazing. Um, and you got to you were the opening act for Marilyn Manson on a Manson tour when Manson was arguably the biggest name in the business at the time. So tell us a little bit about the rise. And then I think you've kind of already alluded to the 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 fall of the Union Underground. But tell us a little bit about your time, because those are some pretty monumental achievements. Major label, Ozfest and Manson. Tell well, us like about Jay, Manson like, Jay, like Jason pointed out, you know, Jason did their showcases. So, you know, they were already like on the path. Um, and then by the time I got into the band, they were already signed to Columbia Records. They had done most of the records. So Brian, um, uh, Brian and Patrick Kennison uh, are the the brainchilds of the band. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, especially especially Brian. He is um, he's a talented singer. Brian Scott, um, huh? Brian Scott. Uh, yeah. Brian Scott, talented singer. He is a talented guitar player. Even though he didn't play guitar live, that guy could wail just as much as Pat. Um, and he, he really knew how to make sound work. So he had, he had a little studio in, in like this small town outside of San Antonio and he got killer tones out of that. And he really, he really was a smart guy. He, he, he knew how, how to make it work. So he was creating this great record called the union Underground. And it's funny. Cause I remember, I remember soak playing with union underground. We were headlining white rabbit, but union underground was like second billing right underneath us. 
And I remember going over to their merch and being like, God damn, these guys got it together. They were always, everything was total pro. You know, their, their cassettes that they were selling cassettes at the time were like on like a display case with lighting underneath coming up. Their shirts were perfect. Everything was just like done perfectly. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't do anything halfway. And so um, when I got into the band, you know, they were already signed to Columbia records. They said, Hey man, the record's pretty much done, but we're doing a couple extra songs. Let's fly you out to LA. And so I ended up tracking three extra songs on the record. And one of the songs was Turn Me On, Mr. Deadman, uh, which became a, a top 10 hit at rock radio. Another song was called South Texas Death Ride. Hmm. And um, we did those songs with, at the time, an up-and-coming producer named Don Gilmore. Don Gilmore's project, right after Union Underground, was Linkin Park. Yeah, because Linkin Park opened for you guys on a tour, right? Yeah, and then there's that that, that connection as well. But yeah. We worked with Don Gilmore before he was with Linkin Park. So that was interesting. And we worked at SIR, or what was it? SIR Studios? NRG Studios, which is a huge studio in LA. So Columbia Records was, they were getting hot producers on, on the record. They were, you know, putting us in the best uh, situation possible. And the band rose to the occasion. They were talented guys, man. So um, we put together what I think still considers a killer hard rock, heavy, heavy rock record. It's so good. And you, you listen to it to this day, it, totally it stands up. It doesn't sound dated at all. There's a lot of great songs on it. So, um, you know, we were on our way. You know, we had um, John Kolodner, the infamous John Kolodner, who resurrected Aerosmith's career. Mm-hmm. We were actually on his imprint label called Portrait, which was a division of Columbia. So originally Portrait was supposed to be a label that was going to revive old band's career like he had done with with uh, with Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that was kind of lightning in a bottle because when he tried it with other bands, it didn't really have the traction. So uh, most of Portrait's, by the time Union Underground got along there, most of Portrait's funds went into us. And, 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 and we had great radio promotion and it just blew up. I remember like talking to some of the biggest and baddest at radio, biggest and baddest at, at booking. We're doing dinners in New York, dinners in LA. I mean, the band is like number one with a bullet, great PR team, amazing ads and all the trades. And then on top of it, we're putting together a show with two screens. And as we play music, the screens like have this like imagery that goes along with the music. I mean, it was just so over the top. Right. It was a freaking freight train that was already going 100 miles per hour. You weren't going to stop it, you know. So, um, so we just just rolled right into a, a, a U.S. touring circuit. And here's how much money there used to be in the in the music industry. This will blow your mind. They booked us a headlining run across America when nobody knew who we were, and they offered the show for a dollar. And so the clubs agreed to do the gig because Portrait paid for whatever money was missing. They were basically like, we're going to buy out your venue on a Friday night. What does it cost? Okay. Now we want you to sell the ticket for a dollar. What? Talk about promotion. You know what I mean? Like it was just all hands on deck, every idea we could do all the money we could put into it. So um, it was just amazing. Great tour. Um, and then, so we're doing these shows for a dollar radio stations going all over it. They're like new band out of Columbia records. They're playing this Friday for a dollar. You can't miss that. And so people would show up and boom, fans for life. And we just, so just hammered it. And then the hype keeps going. Radio single goes up. We, we get the, the Ozfest tour. 
we started in Milton Keynes, which is in London. So they flew us to London. We did the Milton Keynes show, did a couple shows in, in Europe, which is my first time flying over there. And then we come back to the US. We did the entire US run at 2001 OzFest, um, which coincidentally Disturbed was on it as well. And, you know, uh, a lot of great bands were on it. Um, Mudvayne. I mean, it's just, I met so many great people and really got, you know, Soak was kind of an alternative band. Now I'm like really in my element. It's like rock and metal and festivals and fucking awesomeness. Yeah. And and the band just kept going up and going up. Then we get the we get the uh, Marilyn Manson gig and it's hot, right? We're just shy of selling a gold record, and Columbia's like, "All right, time for you guys to get back in the studio." Hmm. Sounds so familiar. We, Sounds yeah, familiar. So we, we put together one song. Um, that ended up at, at uh, it was called Raw. It was the theme for Raw for for wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't supposed to be the theme. We wrote it for somebody else, but they liked the song so much that it became like the theme for the Raw TV show for like 10 years. It was crazy. Wow. So, and you know, in the video, like when you watch the beginning of it, it's like, you get the guns, the drugs. They did a video for us. We're like rocking out inside of a wrestling ring. The whole thing, man. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, Total ascension, ascension, ascension. New record. Uh, okay, well, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. A year goes by. Mm. Hardly anything. And I'm not a primary songwriter. You know, that's Brian Scott. And he is a perfectionist. And what happens with perfectionists is they don't do well with um, deadlines and timelines. And they procrastinate. And then by the time he put together two or three songs that were good, the label's like starting to lose interest. They're spending a lot of money keeping Brian in the studio while the rest of us, now I'm back home in Austin. I got to have a day job because we've, we've, we've stopped the momentum. Yeah. You know, months are going by. I'm like, shit, man. I'm Brian, what's going on? Oh, it's still, still putting it together. You know, when it's time, I'll fly you out. It was just a lot of that, man. Yeah. Finally, they stuck us into a studio with, um, oh, I can't remember the producer, um, Scott. He's a keyboard player on the Metallica's. Um, you, you see him in, in the making of Metallica's uh, Black Album. He does all the all the strings for Unforgiven and stuff okay. like that. Scott, oh, I can't remember his last name, but he, he also produced uh, Rob Zombie's solo records, his first oh, couple Scott, solo records, Dragula. Scott Humphrey. Todd, Todd, yeah, Scott Humphrey. That's who it is. I knew you knew who it was. Yeah. So we're working with Scott Humphrey his LA studio, which is totally pimp. And but we're still just like, there's no magic, man. There's no vibe at all. Everything's just a slugfest. There's an attitude in the band. There is negativity. There's egos. There's rock star shit. I just don't roll like that. It was very difficult. Like I'm trying to like heal wounds here. I'm trying to like, come on, guys, let's get I'm the cheerleader, you know? And then, you know, I'm looking like a, 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 like a, I don't know, like a sad jerk because they're big rock stars. And I've already been to the dance a few times. You know, this is like, I've already been to a label a few times. I've been dropped. We don't want this to happen to us. Trust me. Sure enough, while we're working on the record with Scott, Columbia Records finally goes, yeah, we're done paying for you. We're done. Oh, man. Record's over. Yeah. You guys so- aren't turning around a product. Too much time went by. Yeah. And that's it, man. Do you think it? Do you think that that sometimes, uh, you, you? When I say you, I don't mean you. I mean just anyone. Uh, can easily forget that it can be like that. It can be like that. Just say, yeah, we're we're done. Just pull the plug, and and, and maybe that is an ego that you forget that we're, you can. This could be. It's fleeting moments. 
This could be over. We could be writing what we think is the greatest fucking rock song in the world. And they, someone could just knock on the door and go, yeah, you guys need to move out. We're done. And get evicted, dropped, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. And I think also, they just forget. You, you have to, you, you know, we're a baby band still. We mm-hmm. can't waste people's time. Two years can't go by with no product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, it, no one's going to care anymore. And the way the labels work, you know, there, there's a lot of musical chairs at the labels. So whoever was championing you, whatever team that used to be there at Columbia is now fractured. That Half the team's there now. Yeah. And the, the new half of the team has got their own favorite bands that they brought in. No, you don't need that Union Underground band anymore. Why are we putting money in them, man? I got this new band over here who are hot. And they got the record out right now. Yeah. And, you know, you got to keep going. You, you know, just it's a long way to the top. But when you're at the top, you got to fight harder than ever because everybody wants to be there. And I'm not saying we were at the top, but even just in the climb, you can never stop pushing. You can't ever stop. Can't ever stop. And and Union Underground stopped, basically. Yeah. We, and we, I don't blame the label for getting rid of us. I, I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm surprised they, they kept us on as long as they did. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. We should mention that the album we're talking about is called An Education in Rebellion. Education um, in Rebellion, yeah. yeah I, I love that record, that. too. Um, I'm really proud of that record. It, it turned out great. And, and I love touring it. And it was fun. But You mentioned something in the conversation about that album that you, you kind of came in halfway through or something. So who played bass on the tracks that you didn't play on? Uh, Patrick and Brian, one okay. of the, between the okay. two of them. So yeah, it was with, it's still done within the band then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys yeah. were really good players. And then, yeah, and then I came in and kind of did my own little thing. Tell us about the, you know, quickly about the Manson tour. And then I want to move on to some of your other stuff. But the Manson tour, I mean, if you're in a rock band in the early 2000s or something and you that was, get, the, that was the golden, that was that, that was, was the ticket to be a part of. And, you know, it's Manson, so it's got to be surrounded by insanity. So tell us a little bit about from your perspective, how that tour was. Uh, well, we were playing big theaters. So like, if you're familiar, like Eagles ballroom, you know, in Milwaukee and, and, you know, these, these are pretty big rooms, the tabernacle in, um, Atlanta. Um, so decent, decent rooms. They're all sold out. Um, and it was only like, I think we're only on the tour for three weeks, but freaking felt like three months. Just like every night was an adventure. There's always something crazy going on. And every day he's being picketed by like, christians against you know whatever and he just would love it Mm. he would sit there and like scream at him outside his bus and like you know it was just adding to his whole thing you know he he really like he really embraced that um Mm -hmm. riling people up and 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 sort of being counterculture and it worked for him so like i'm looking and i'm saying like well the more people there's a there's a correlation here the more people that are picketing outside his show the more people that are showing up with tickets inside, <laughs> you know, exactly, I'm like, yeah. this guy's doing something right. Uh, <laughs> Godhead was the opening act. Got to know, get to know those guys really well. Um, and then um, I ended up, you know, befriending Manson. We, you know, I ended up on his bus a couple of times, hanging out with the band. Um, it was Pogo, uh, Twiggy, um, uh, John five, I think was in the band right then. And it was the guns, gods and government tour. And it just, it was great, man. Had, had, had a great time with them. They were personable, but he was definitely, you know, he has a regalness about him, especially back then. He'd walk into the room and he was very cool. And, you know, you respect him, you know, and he, and for all his craziness, 
the Manson camp was run really well. Like everything was like perfect. Yeah. Um, and then we were watching them. We're like, this is the way you run a, you know, if we ever get to this level, this is the way you run it. Um, the crew always on point. Everybody was just great. Our last show was in New York at, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the theater, big place. Um, and Lars shows up. So that was my first time meeting Lars. Lars is backstage and Manson was dating Rose McGowan at the time. So it's Rose McGowan, Manson, Lars, me, Patrick, and a couple other people. <laughs> and we were just partying backstage, having a good time. And then we ended up going to like some after party afterward. And then, and then uh, I ended up hanging out with Lars at the end of the night. Uh, it was just, you know, it was wild. It was like, it was rock stardom, but like big time rock stardom. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I ask because it sounds, I mean, I remember that tour and I thought, you know, there is no bigger tour right now in that genre of music and you're sort of in the eye of the storm. So yeah, that's exactly in the eye of the storm. Just taking notes, enjoying the ride, um, you know, being appreciative of, uh, of every day. Did you learn anything not to do? <laughs> <laughs> I probably did everything wrong at some point. <laughs> I, feel I, was like younger you're... Back then. I bounced back quicker. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like there was you're... no shortage of Jaeger, you know, um, there wasn't a night that went by that we didn't drink ourselves, you know, into oblivion, but somehow we were able to get up the next day and still rock and still, you know, keep it going. But that young, um, that young factor is the reason why you were that, able to that helps. Back. Yeah. That helps. I feel like your time maybe with the union underground and the, the, the mingling and the, the learn and the lesson and the, the people and uh, the, the the rise of Union Underground and the people that you were at the OzFest, the people you met on OzFest, disturbed you met on OzFest. Yeah. The connections that you made while you were in Union, Union Underground, do you feel like, I mean, I think I, I feel like I already know the answer to the question. I just feel like those those connections are what ultimately, even though you're a respectable man, you, you did everything you know, with passion and correct. And as I said, used your, your, uh, your resources, uh, to where you are now in your almost 20 year run with disturbed. I feel like your time with union underground and that, that, that ladder or the, the stepping stones and things like that. And I feel like you, you did a lot of things right in that your time in your time with union underground. And that's sort of like, people recalled that it sort of like helped you get the gig. Kind I don't of know. I like to think I left a good impression. You know, that's what I'm trying to say. I, I, I would rather be, you know, the nice guy that didn't get the gig than the dick that did. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there, I definitely, you know, I, I, when wow. I did that final audition for disturbed, one of the dudes who kind of thought he had the gig was a real jerk. I remember trying to meet him and talk to him. He's like, turned around away from me. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess they're going to be that guy. I'm not, you know, yeah. I'm in this, you know, to enjoy myself and, 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 you know, I have some lifelong friends from that, you know, me and the drowning pool guys, I'm still lifelong friends with, you know, and, and, and people who I met from that era, uh, lacuna coil and, and, and whatever, you know, they remember, you know, me from union and obviously, you know, I've solidified those friendships even more so and disturbed, but I'm still that same guy. I'm, I'm a, I'm a cheerleader. I'm, I'm, I want us all to win, you yeah. know, I'm not like we're better than them and you know or why are they blowing up and we aren't that's a big thing that i saw was oh, yeah. you know papa roach would blow up and then my band would be like 
what the hell? And I'm like, dude, we're all on our own fucking journey. Just chill out. You know, like it comes when it comes. Just just do our thing here. Um, you know, like, do you really want Carson Daly on stage with you? Like, you know, it's okay. <laughs> you know, you remember that? Papa Roach was blowing up so big. They were on TRL, you know, and I'm like, well, we don't really need to go there, guys. Like, let's just do our own thing. Um, but, you know, I never, that's a bad, that's a thing musicians do. They compare themselves to other people mm. on any level mm-hmm. and they get, they get uh, bitter over it. You know, that's just not in me. Yeah. You know, I'm like, let's all win. Let's all, let's all make this work. I maybe can learn from another band. Like, like, well, why are they doing better than us? Okay. Take notes. Don't complain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One more side note on Ozfest. Do you remember a band that was also on that Ozfest tour that year called Pure Rubbish? Oh yeah. I used to hang out with those kids all the time. Um, uh, uh, drummer's name was Nick, I believe. Evan. What? Evan. Evan was the drummer. What was the the singers uh, the singer guitar player? Derek. Yes. Derek. Derek and Evan Donovan. They were brothers. The brothers. I would yeah. hang out with them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because I were think when so I so talented, they were amazing. I thought they were gonna really go far because you know. But we've all heard this story before. A, a band has all the ingredients, and the industry doesn't cooperate or whatever. But those kids were amazing. They were I, like they were so young, but. They didn't, they didn't, when you hung out with them, you didn't feel like they were young. No. <laughs> they, they had like old souls. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like not, not just their talent, and their musicality, but even like in the way they presented themselves and they spoke and the, the way they handled themselves. I'm just like, there's no way you guys are teenagers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We thought they were going to hit, but you know. Yeah. They, and they had the backing of Sharon Osbourne and, um, uh, you know, they were from Houston. So when right. when my wife and I, before we were married, she lived in the Houston area. So we'd had this long distance relationship and I'd go to visit her in Houston and I would befriended the guys somewhere along the line. So then we would go to their rehearsal space and hang out and then we would go to their shows. And then we were really proud of them when they got the OzFest thing. And then we saw them as the backing band for Kelly Osbourne on the MTV Movie Awards. There was she did a Madonna song, and Pure Rubbish was, was the backing band. We couldn't believe yeah. we're watching them on TV. Uh, but yeah, they were like teenagers. I think Evan was like fourteen at the time, yeah. but they were old souls. Their dad was sort of a, a punk rocker, so those kids were growing up on Hanoi Rocks and the Dead Boys and the Stooges sure. and stuff like that. So. Oh, they, they knew every single G and R lick too. Oh yeah, 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 and really talented kids. But yeah, when I went to see that Ozfest in San Antonio, uh, I went to. Uh, I was pretty friendly with Patrick Kennison at the time, more so than you at the time, and I was looking for him. I think he either hooked me up with some passes or something, and he said, "Hey, I'm hanging out with the Pure Rubbish guys," and I was like, "Oh, killer! I know those guys." So. We all kind of had a little bit of a reunion there in San Antonio at the Ozfest. Yeah, yeah, Union Underground was pretty tight with those kids, actually. You know, we let them on our bus and, you know, hang out with them. You know, took them under our wing a little bit. They were they were cool. Yeah. Do remember them well. Let me uh, jump around yeah. here. I want to you know, say bands are here today, gone later today. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Industry. Exactly. Well, I do stay in touch with them from time to time. And I do know that they're they're doing very well, especially the brothers. Uh, they're still in the music business. They're a little more behind the scenes now, but... Uh, still very active in in the music business. So, uh, you know, obviously wish them continued success. I wanted to ask you, there's a couple other things that I wanted to touch on. Uh, Your career has crossed paths with some other really interesting people. Art of Anarchy. Tell us a little bit about that band, because there was a time Scott Weiland from Stone Temple was the singer. 
and so, that so kind of disturbed. fell apart yeah. or something. So in 2011, Disturbed took a extended hiatus. Okay, we were just like we're taking a break, and so it was like, all right, what am I going to do now? You know, so it was kind of like license for me to like, I don't know, join some other bands, see what else is out there. Um, so I did rock and roll fantasy camp and I started doing these other things and word kind of starts getting out about me. And, 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 um, I did a couple different side projects. One of them was the band art of anarchy. So there's these two brothers out of long Island, twin brothers, guitar player and drummer. And they had been working with Ron Thal Bumblefoot from guns and roses, you know, later on guns and roses. And obviously if you know anything about Ron, he's, he's a, he's a shredder. Like yeah. that guy is Virtuoso. like, freaking mind-blowing yeah and he has perfect pitch and he's the sweetest coolest dude in the world and he's a hell of a producer too so he's been producing music with these guys so they they got together a, a pretty good grouping of material for this record and the, the brothers had some backing so that you know they had money and so they um they reached out to scott wyland i guess scott wasn't doing anything and they convinced scott wyland to sing on the record and then they reached out to me <laughs> I mean, they go, hey man, you know, we're this band out of Long Island. We got Ron Thaw Bumblefoot uh, playing and producing for us, and we got Scott Island singing. Would you like to play bass? I'm like, yeah, that's a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I, I flew out, met the guys in person, played all over the record. Um, Wyland sang on it, but Wyland sang on it in his studio with his producer in LA. Okay. Okay. It was never really any interaction during the making of the record. Ah, okay. So we're trying to put together, you know, a label deal and all this. We we get it, we get a deal. And, you know, they're thinking, oh, this is gonna be a super group, this is gonna be easy money, you know, we'll get these guys on the road, whatever. Well, Wyland's head wasn't in it. Um, he for some reason thought he could sing on a record and not tour it, or he could sing in a band and not be in the band. But it doesn't really work when you're on his level. Like, no, that that's your band now. Like that's you know. So he even did, so I only met him once. Um, we did videos. So we, we had two video shoots that we did over like a, a three or four day period in LA. And that was the only time I really had any, any, any interaction with him. And even that was very limited. Um, but the record that we did is really good. And it was Scott Weiland's last performance before he died, last performance on record before mm. he died. And Although he wasn't the lion that he used to be, like when you listen to like Dead and Bloated, and, you know, some of those early STP records where he was just like powerful. He wasn't powerful, but he was soulful and he was beautiful and he was deep. It, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, um, you know, I know this is a stretch maybe for some of our listeners. So Billie Holiday, during her later years, you know, she had a bad heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. And you could hear it in her voice, this, this loneliness, this soulfulness. And I'm not recommending people do heroin, but what I am saying is some artists who have that, who are on it and, and, and perform on it, there is like a quality to their voice that is indescribable. And, and that's what I heard in Wyland's voice on our last record. He had this, you could tell it was going to be his last record. It was, it was like his swan song and it was so powerful. It's a really good record. Highly recommended. Art of Anarchy's first record. We had great artwork on it. The whole thing was great. We had, you know, we had support labeling, but the, uh, Scott Wyland didn't want to, didn't want to do it. So that kind of kills it. Right. <laughs> yeah. What's the title of that album? Is it self-titled? Self that, self one's, that one's just self-titled. 
And then for some reason, we decided to do it again with another Scott. We did it with Scott um, Stapp from Creed. Right. Okay. Um, on this record, I did a lot more writing. Uh, the record's called The Madness. Um, that was a tough record to make. Um, a lot of like just sitting in the jam room with Scott Stapp and Bumble and, and the whole band and just trying to get everybody on the same page and trying to um, – I was in a super creative zone at that point, so I, I brought in a ton of songs. I probably wrote half that record. And, um, you know, it was good. It was difficult working with Stapp because he's um, – I, I, you know, you just don't know which staff you're going to get. Like some days you're going to get creative staff and some days you're going to get the staff who just wants to sit in the corner and say, everything sucks. Hmm. So, you know, he was kind of moody. Um, and he, you know, he was only into it so much. It was very frustrating. It was like dragging an elephant uphill, yeah. you know, sometimes. Um, so it was, I, you know, I don't mind saying this, you know, cause it turned into an entire shit show. He prom he, he, you know, he was supposed to do, we signed to a label again, um, we were supposed to do, um, I think he was promised to do 90 shows with us. He did six and then bailed. So, wow. and that was all in the contract. Like we're, and it, I can talk about this cause it's already, it's, it's not going to put out too much, but we are in a dispute with him, uh, mm -hmm. legally. And you know, that's already been around. So, you know, I'm, I'm not like letting the cat out of a bag or saying anything that hadn't been already told in the press years ago. Um, uh, so we're, it's been years, but we're getting to the end of that dispute. It's frustrating because when you get into a band, you trust people. It's, it's, I want to say it's like a marriage, but it, it's, it's a relationship. Yeah. yeah. And you know, when somebody's in, in that relationship and they're not being truthful and they're there under false reasons and, and, you know, they're, they're already planning an exit plan when you're, you know, you're buying the house and they're trying to figure out a way to, you know, ditch you, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it hurts. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm a trusting person. I, I'm not going to say I'm naive, but I refuse to get hardened. The, the music industry will break your heart. Um, there's a reason that Sims Foundation exists because it is not a mentally friendly industry. Um, so, you know, but I've, I've, I'm not going to allow that to happen to me. I'm not going to allow myself to get hardened by things. So, like, even though the thing with Scott Weiland didn't work out, even though Disturb was on hiatus, even though I had dealt with the losses in Union Underground – you know, a lot of heartbreak. I was still like, all right, Scott Stapp, let's go, you know, fresh and as a Daisy and, and willing to do it, even though he didn't have a great history uh, coming into the camp. He right. just come off of his whole thing where he was traveling across the country in the back of a truck homeless, mm -hmm. you know, and he's telling us all these stories and he's just back sober. So we're his sober camp. We're supporting him. There is no drinking. What do you need, Scott Stapp, to make this work? All hands on deck. We believe in you. We want you to be a part of this. You're going to agree to this. Awesome. Yeah. And then someone turns your, and then you put all that into somebody and they turn your back on you. I don't really have a lot of remorse for that. It really hurt my feelings. It hurt. It, it, I want to say my feelings. It hurt my soul because I put a lot into that record and, and he had no intention of touring it. And, and, and it's come out now, like so much has come out in the wash that I'm just like, I just can't believe the things that were said that weren't true so there's that story <laughs> yeah yeah i, I bring it up i'm gonna get in trouble for this some lawyer is gonna call me and be like you can't bash blah 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 blah, blah. i don't you think he bashed anybody i'm just telling the truth man it just sucked yeah. Yeah. you know promises were made they weren't kept and i wouldn't do that to you i wouldn't do that to you jace i wouldn't do that to you david yeah. you know I, yeah. I wouldn't do that to anybody and and how people can go through life and do that and think it's okay because they're somebody is the worst kind of rock star ego I can imagine.
Yeah. Well, if there's anything we've learned about you in this conversation, it's that you have a history of learning from adversity. So, um, it, you know, these unfortunately, yeah, well, you know, you could say unfortunately, but I think even you would look in the mirror and say, I took something valuable away from those experiences, even if it's what, even if I learned what not to do and how not to behave. Uh, and that'll, that'll serve you well going forward. Um, another project I wanted to talk about, because again, uh, you've worked with some pretty amazing people and that's adrenaline mob. You'd worked sure. with, uh, Mike Portnoy in that Mike. band. Mm -hmm. And then after Portnoy steps aside, in comes AJ Perro from Twisted Sister. So two great drummers, uh, that you got to work with. Tell us a little bit about adrenaline mob. Adrenaline mob is like Led Zeppelin virtuoso. Those guys were outrageous. So for years, I'm playing in bands, we're playing to a click. I'm a machine, you know, Union Underground, Disturbed. It's like, Adrenaline Mob was the band I got into actually right after Disturbed took our hiatus. That was the first band. So Portnoy knew of me because Avenged Sevenfold had toured with Disturbed on one of the fests that were going around at the time. I forgot which one. And so me and me and Portnoy had become friends and he, and when they needed a bass player, he was the one who recommended me. He reached out to me. And so I show up and it's, it's, so I don't know if you know, Russell Allen. Well, I know, you know, Russell Allen from Symphony X. He's the singer. Russell Allen is six foot four of the most beautiful voice you've ever heard in your life. That guy could sing the phone book. It's fucking incredible. I agree. It's just perfect. And he never has to warm up. He's just the most gifted singer I've ever met in my life. It's fucking incredible. And the, the guitar player's name is Mike Orlando. Mike Orlando was a total shredder. Like, you know, one of those guys is like goes to Nam every year and has all the endorsements. But you don't know who he is because he hasn't had his breakthrough band yet. But he's that guy. You know, he knows all the scales. He knows all the riffs. He can play anything. Um, just another virtuoso, right? And then Mike Portnoy, we don't even need to talk about him. Dream Theater, you know, 12 years in a row voted best progressive drummer on the planet. Yeah. So you're talking like three really... When we talk about musicians that are really great but not famous, now we're talking about like three great musicians who are who are like semi-famous, well, especially Portnoy, but making it happen. And they wrote, you know, a great record. So, um, and they they brought me in. I came in. Um, the first record I did not play on, um, but we toured it. And then um, then AJ Perro comes in, and I did well. Then we did a cover record called Coverta. I did that with Mike Portnoy. And then the third record. Uh, I did with AJ Perro and I, you know, um, uh, played bass on that one. So I did three records with, with adrenaline mob and, um, we toured Europe, we toured South America. Um, we, you know, we were there, we were doing it. It was happening. Yeah. Um, great players. Here's what I wanted to get to, to, you though. it changed the way I played bass. So for years, um, you know, I'm a very specific player. Like once I learned how to play a part, I played the same way every time. That's not what these guys do. They play the essence of the song. Every night's a different performance. <laughs> it was wild. I'm trying, I'm chasing Mike Portnoy, trying to get us, him and I to lock in on some kind of like groove thing. And it's just not happening because he plays it differently every night. And I'm looking at Mike Orlando and I'm like, what's the riff you play at the end of this? Bro, I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I'm looking at Russell Allen. Russell's like, Russell sings different melodies every night, whatever he feels. They're just like so good that they don't have to like, there's no muscle memory. They just do it. It comes from their head and their heart, not their fingers. It's fucking wild. So yeah. it took a while for me to like find my groove with those guys. And, 
And I finally did. And it's crazy how it clicked. I'm chasing Mike on drums. It's not working. I, I just could feel it. So it's like they had no problem with it. They thought it was all good. But for me, I was like, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, the, we're not glued together like we need to be. So you were in a jazz band. I was like, I was in a jazz band. <laughs> so one day the monitor guy goes, okay, you want kick in your monitor? No. You want guitar in your monitor? No. <laughs> wow. He goes, what do you want in your monitor? I go, you know what? I don't want anything. And I just played the song and ignored the band. Know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I just played the way I want the song to sound from bass instead of trying to like work with them. I swear to God, that's the day we became a band. It was like all of a sudden I was the foundation and they were playing around me. I was the consistent. I was the, they, and I, I always had impeccable tempo. You know, that wasn't a big deal from playing to a click for so many years. So, you know, Mike could go off on some field. He could go off, even try to lose me. It would never happen because I know my tempo. You know, so whenever Mike would start going off on one of his crazy fills, I just tap my foot. I stay in the groove and he'd land that thing. Bam. And I'm like, we're a band. This is it. I cracked the fucking code. I have to ignore you guys. And now we're great. (laughs) (laughs) But it, It worked because those guys needed, you can't all be soloing all the time. You know, you need somebody who's, you know, to solo too. You know, and that ended up being me. And I was sort of the consistent guy playing the song with the consistent riffs. And they were the ones that were like working all over. And that, and we became a great band. You know, I remember when it happened. Very interesting story. And like, we would do breakdowns, like middle of the song. I never knew when it's coming. My first gig with these guys in New York, they're like, oh, break it down. We introduced the band. Oh, we're playing. Oh, we got Michael Lando on guitar. Okay, cool. And then uh, Mike Portnoy. We got John Moore over here. Give us a lick, John. And I'm like, ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Come on, man. And I'm like, no, no, that's cool. He's like, no, you're going to solo into the microphone. I'm like, fuck me. Okay. <laughs> totally like just walking a high wire every night. I remember Mike's playing along and he stops the drums and I stop. And Mike says in the microphone, no, keep going, John. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys are so amazing. And I learned so much from them. My tone got better. My playing got better. I changed my gear. I use specters now because of them. Um, I mean, those guys made me such a much better player. And then when union underground got back together after my time with art of anarchy, my time with adrenaline mob, my time playing with Jeff Tate, when Disturbed got back together after our hiatus, I was a monster. I'm coming in just like, you know, I never stopped. You know, those guys kind of took breaks and David did, did his side project and Dan did his side project, but none of them were working as hard as I was or with as many different bands, as many different influences. And I just picked it all up like a sponge. So, you know, that little hiatus, that little four-year hiatus we took, that was a huge thing for me as a musician. I, it's, I think it's important to play with other people. You know, that you get you get really good when you you know you get those other influences. Unfortunately, most bands don't get to do that because like I said earlier, when you're in a band, you're it's like your gang. You know, you don't really stray. You know, like Metallica said, you know, we're a fist, we don't do side projects, you know, this is us. And I respect that mentality, but unfortunately, as a musician, you can lose opportunities to really learn unless you're jamming with other people. Yeah. Right. You uh, you mentioned Jeff Tate, and I wanted to ask about that as well, because you played, uh, I guess he was billing himself as Operation Mindcrime at the time. Um, yeah. I actually and- joined, I joined Tate when he was, so there was a time when there were two Queensrikes. Hmm. So they split, Jeff had his Queensryche, and I joined the scab Queensryche crew with Jeff. And then there was the other Queensryche that had all the other members and Todd Latour. 
And the judge who was in charge of it in Washington state was like, well, I don't, I'm not going to award either one of you guys the name Queensryche. We're just going to let this go on for a year. Next year, you got, he, he said, you guys can both tour under the name Queensryche. In a year, we'll see who's still standing and who's you know proven themselves to be the real Queensryche. What a ballsy thing for a judge wow. to do. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so both bands like had had a mission. We got to be the better Queensryche. So um, Jeff put together a, a killer band. Um, and uh, Rudy Sarza was, was in that band. And then Rudy couldn't do some gigs. So Rudy called me up because I had done um, Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. So Rudy had seen me play and trusted me. So I came in and filled in for Rudy for a little bit. And then Rudy slowly stepped out. And then I became the player, you know, that Jeff was calling on more often than not. And then eventually they came to the agreement that there was not going to be two Queensrikes. They got awarded. The other camp got awarded the Queensryche name. And then and then um, Jeff got awarded all uh, rights to Operation Mindcrime, the record, the name, and any artwork associated with that. And that's kind of where the split happened. So then I became sort of a member of, of Operation Mindcrime. And I did um, I did three records with him. It was over one session. Like we did, we did like 24 songs over a week. And wow. that ended up being three records uh, for Jeff. Wow. wow. And, yeah. And I Whoa. toured with them and, and, and did all that. It was a lot of fun. I did Europe with those guys and, and toured the States. And, and um, Jeff and I are still great friends. So what was it like working with Jeff? Because in, for, for me, in, in my mind, he's one of the premier vocalists of my youth. When I was a teenager, I've told this story before on the show where, you know, just when you thought nobody could give any competition to Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson, here comes this Jeff Tate from Queensryche. And you just, you're running around high school going, oh my God, there's somebody that can compete with Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> You never thought that was going to be possible. And now it's been done, you know, a, a number of times by other people. But to me, Jeff is one of those quintessential voices. And the songs that he did with Queensryche, I mean, you you got to play them every night. What was that like for you playing those songs and working with Jeff as a yeah, person? So, so when Empire came out, that record, I was in high school. That was a big record for me. I remember going and seeing Queensryche when I was, you know, 16 years old in concert. Um and uh, they did all of Operation Mind Crime, and then they did. Was this in El Paso? In El Paso, Texas, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I was definitely a fan. Um, I didn't know Jeff, so when he reached out to me, Rudy Sarzo didn't give me a heads up. I literally get a text message from its unknown Seattle number, and it's like, "Hey, John, this is Jeff Tate. Just wanted to know if you're free in May. I could use you for some kicks." You know, I was like, "What? This, this is real?" I call him up. He's so classy. He's so kind. He's a thoughtful human being. Um, you know, whatever stories that, you know, may have gone around about him or whatever, I don't know any of that, Jeff. I know the Jeff who's just really like a good dude. And um, he's very, you know, a guy like that gets into his position because he's pushing boundaries and he's doing stuff that nobody else is doing. And then once he once once the band, in my opinion, once the band had hit that pinnacle with Empire, his mentality never changed. He kept pushing boundaries. And I think I think there was part of that. He kind of left his audience behind a little bit on, on later records mm -hmm. because he was still in that head zone of pushing because that's what got him to where he was at. Yeah. And, I, and he was just he he he, he was so, you know, he's he's he pushing those boundaries so much. He, you know, kind of like left his audience behind a little bit. I think that's kind of what happened, except for the hardcore audience. You know, and he still has his fans, his lifelong fans that will always be there for him. But you can you can see, you know, when you look at Queensrÿche Records, that was their peak was Empire, 
And then, you know, they never really had any strong follow-ups afterward. Right. Um, but that's because he's a visionary. That's just who he is. And when I started working with him, you know, I remember I was trying to write some songs for the record. I'm kind of like leaning on Operation Mindcrime. I'm leaning on Queensryche as, as, um, as you know, direction. Mm-hmm. And he's not interested in any of that. He's like, nah, been there, done that. Yeah. Oh, I get it. You don't, you're not rehashing. You're just, everything has to be new for you. You just want to do something new. And here's another thing with him. Every day he wakes up and he sings first thing in the morning. Like when you're on the bus, you always know when you're on Jeff Tate's bus because first thing in the morning, just hear him walking through, you know, bunk alley. And then you go out front to get coffee. He's like, hello, John, would you like some coffee? He sings all day long. It's great. And he hates days off. The guy's a warrior. He hates days off. He wants to, he wants to perform every single night. And he, and that's how he keeps fresh. He just sings all day long. He's a really unique, cool dude and, and an incredible talent. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. You've, you've really had some amazing opportunities, uh, come your way. And I, I just, I've loved picking your brain and hearing about all this stuff. <laughs> Thanks man. Yeah. It's fun to talk about it. I'm, I'm liking going down, uh, going down memory lane here. It's been fun. Yeah. And I can tell your enthusiasm comes through and I think that's what makes, uh, that's, that's what makes it so interesting is I can tell that you you genuinely appreciate all the opportunities you've earned and been afforded uh, because when you tell the stories, the little kid excitement still comes out of you. So yep. we could do a whole other podcast next time, just about rock and roll fancy camp. I got stories for days on that camp. It's so wow. good. Cause that's uh, yeah. where you get like all kinds of different rock stars that come in, you know, and every one of them, there's always some unique thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that. Um, because I, yeah, again, you've, you've crossed paths with so many uh, people that we're all familiar with and we appreciate their work and you've got some unique insights. So uh, maybe we'll do that. Yep. <laughs> Jason, you got anything else for John today? No, I, um, I, I'm just, I've just in, enjoyed you guys. Uh, you know, the questions that you have for John uh, were awesome. And uh, actually, I didn't even know about the art of anarchy. There's, I learned a lot. Um, not to, not to say that, uh, you know, that we all, that you and I don't have history with John cause we do, but the cool thing about Mr. Moyer is, is from the day that I met him, he hadn't changed. <laughs> There's nothing different about I know. John at all. There's nothing. I can't say anything has changed from, uh, yeah, uh, 2001, 2000, when, when did you get to, when did you, what's, what's, when did Soak start playing out? 97. Because I didn't know you before that. I didn't, I didn't know you before that. No, no, Soak's the time. So it would have been 97, 98 that you and I first met. Right. I do the same thing. I, I mark times in my life according to what band I was in and what tour I was on. You know, <laughs> like, how long have we known each other? Well, I was in this band at the time. It was this summer. So it must've been this tour. Oh yeah. And, we're like, we, and then like, you can come down to like the day you're like, wait a minute. It was in Detroit. And you're like, you go into like, you know, your old calendar or something. You're like, oh yeah. You know, you're like, it was June 21st, the day we met. <laughs> Cause our lives are like dictated like that. Yeah, yeah, but however, however that you don't lose your mind, if that's the way that you do it, that's fine. Yeah. Whatever it is, those, those it, call it a milestone, whatever it is, those little things, like an anniversary. 
yeah. whatever it is for you to not forget an anniversary so you get in, don't get in trouble with anyone <laughs> you you specify you can you can put everything put a timeline or a it's like tying a string to a tree so you don't get lost. You know, it's, it's, it's the way that I kind of. Oh, yeah. I got a lot of strings that are tied to a lot of trees out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. I, so I, all forest of them. Yeah, I remember uh, the first time I met John. I don't, we didn't actually meet. Somebody pointed him out across the, uh, across the room at a club in Austin on 6th Street. I think it was Babes. And I was with the guys in 50 Mission Crush. Oh, I love those guys. Yeah. And they, and they said, do you know John Moyer? Uh, he plays in this band Soak. And I was like, I don't think so. And they pointed you out. And of course you stood out, you know, and, but that's the first time I remember laying eyes on you. And I was going to say back to Jason's point, even back then you had the sideburns and the hair like this, yeah. that you have today. So that hasn't changed either. <laughs> yeah. It turned, turned into more of a beard now, but yeah. You know. yeah. So what's with the hair? How long have you had the hair braided? Uh, yeah, the dreads, is that what you call it? Dreads, dreads, uh, dreads since 97. Okay. So I've never known you with anything, but so, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's your I, my hair. I mean, if I let it go, it probably looked like Jason's. It'd be more blonde. This is this artificial intelligence right here. Oh, all right. <laughs> Dreadlock. <laughs> you just made me think of like predator or some shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. have dreads too. Yeah, they do. Mm. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This man. Is fun, man. Thank you guys so much. This is awesome. I'm down to do this anytime you guys want. And, uh, you know, this is great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest today on the Talk Louder podcast, John Moyer. And on behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner signing off on the Talk Louder podcast. Talk Louder. Talk Louder.